Okay, so today I want to jump right into our message and continue on as we launched last week looking together at the last night of Jesus' ministry here on the earth. This, this uh, text that's known as the Upper Room Discourse. It's that time where Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the Upper Room. They're in Jerusalem. They're celebrating together the Passover dinner for the very last time. Jesus is just a few hours away from being arrested, away from the beginning of the sham trials, away from the start of the torture and all of the things that are going to take place. They've just eaten the Passover meal together, except this time Jesus changed the program from what they were used to. While they're eating this meal, Jesus takes the bread. And at one point he breaks the bread and he says, this bread that I just broke, it's my body broken for you. And then later he takes a cup and passes it and he says, this cup represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which will be shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. And let me just tell you, the disciples are having a really hard time. Imagine if you were there at dinner and Jesus is talking about his body being broken and his blood being shed on top of the fact that for weeks, for months, he's been talking about leaving them. He's been talking about dying. He's been talking about being carried off to death. Now, Add to that, he's just gotten done telling them, one of you who are at dinner with us right now are going to betray me. And then, when Judas leaves, Peter says, well, I'm never going to betray you. In fact, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, before tomorrow morning, before the cock, before tomorrow morning, you will betray me not once, but three times. Now, can you imagine how intense, how, how difficult this is for the disciples sitting around the table, sitting around the meal. Jesus is talking about dying. He's talking. And this isn't the first time he's mentioned this, friends. In fact, let's do a little review here. Going all the way back in Jesus' ministry, Luke 9, 22, The Son of Man, that's the name for the Messiah, Jesus identified himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. Later on in his ministry, in Matthew 17, he tells the disciples, after they gathered again in Galilee, Jesus told them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. And the disciples were filled with grief. Now again, as they get ready to head into the city of Jerusalem for the last time, Matthew 20, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. They'll sentence him to die. They will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with the whip and crucified but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Jesus has been crystal clear, friends. It, the disciples couldn't fathom it. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't see it because it was so contrary to what they were expecting. But Jesus has been clear. Jesus has been preparing the disciples for this moment for the last three years. And now, remember, we said last week, Jesus' time has now come. It's just hours away 
from his arrest. It's just moments, in fact, from where everything that they've known is going to change. And yet, what is Jesus doing in the midst of all of this? When Jesus has every right to expect them to take care of him, instead, what's he doing? He's caring for his disciples. Remember last week, he washed their feet. He, he's caring for their needs physically, emotionally, spiritually. And now we're going to look at chapter 14, which I'm just going to say, I know this is hard because I'll say things like this a lot, but chapter 14 of the Gospel of John may just be my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. And really, truly, every single verse in this chapter could be a sermon series. Okay, you understand, there's so much here that we can never dive into the full depth of all of this content. But today especially, I just felt in preparation for one specific part of this John chapter 14 that really jumped off the page to me in light of what the disciples were dealing with and also what we as disciples continue to deal with today. So here's how it begins, John 14 verse 1. Jesus is seeing that the disciples are having a hard time. They're, they're, they're grieving. They're dealing with some very difficult realities. So he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. You see, Jesus wants to move his disciples from being troubled to trusting. So he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. That's the negative command. And he follows it up with the positive command. Trust in God and trust also in in me. Jesus is teaching us here that the antidote to our troubled heart is trusting in Jesus. The antidote to our anxiety, the antidote to our fear is faith, is trusting in Jesus. And friends, this is a truth you actually see play out all throughout the Bible. In fact, we just finished a sermon series about David. And I think this is what made David so unique in all of Scripture is David really trusted God. David believed God and believed in his word. In fact, David wrote Psalm 910, Those who know your name trust in you, for you, O Lord, do not abandon those who search for you. He also wrote Psalm 56, verse 3 through 4. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He says, when I'm afraid, when my heart is troubled, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? See, David had this confidence, David had this faith, he had a trust that God would deliver him regardless of what happens and regardless of what his natural outlook was telling him. David trusted God. And friends, this is truly the antidote Jesus gives us for our troubled heart. Let me just stop real quick and say, a troubled heart is something that happens in this world. If you look around you, friends, at the news, at the stuff that's going on, you see floods in Libya, you see earthquakes in Morocco, you see all of these things happening around the world. And what does it do? It troubles our heart. But Jesus is saying, no, no, there's an antidote to your troubled heart, disciples. That antidote is if you trust me. Romans 15, 13 says it like this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. How? When? As you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus is actually going to now transition this conversation to giving them some specific 
things for them to trust in, some specific targets for them to place their trust and their hope in that he knows will help them when their heart is troubled. And again, anyone willing to admit at times in this world that your heart is troubled? Yes, right? So these will help you the same way that Jesus told his disciples they would help them. So here's number one. If you're a note taker, number one is this. Here's what Jesus is going to tell them first. God has a big house and a big heart. See, Jesus is going to describe to them just how generous his father is and just how big his father's house is. This is important that you understand this. God's house is not small. John 14, 2, there is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going? Would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? Jesus is saying, listen, God's house is not small, it's not shabby, it's large enough, it has plenty of space, it has so many rooms, it has one just for you. And in the midst of your trouble, in the midst of your difficulty, disciples, you all, disciples, and the ones listening, he's saying, listen, friends, there's a place for you with my Father. And what's cool about God's house is it's a big house, but it's not big just to show off. You know, some people live in mansions and there's like one or two people who live in it. You think, what are they doing with this massive house? Only one or two people living there. Well, actually, God's house isn't like that. God's house has a bunch of rooms in it, but Jesus said the rooms are for you. They're a place for you. In fact, Jesus is on a mission at this point in the story. He was always on this mission, but it's extra close right now where he's moving forward to prepare a place for the disciples so that they could live in the Father's house. Remember, there's an issue. The issue that stands between mankind and God, and the reason that the disciples couldn't live in the Father's house was because of their sinfulness. They were not allowed into God's presence, but Jesus was going to make a place for them. How? He was going to die for their sin on the cross, be resurrected from the dead. He was going to destroy once and for all the gap between God and mankind so that mankind can now dwell with God in God's presence. Jesus was making a way for them to enter into the heart and the the hospitality of the Father. This is really encouraging, friends, if you understand it. When we face trouble, when we face difficulty, when our heart is troubled, that we remember that there is a place for you. And it gets even better. Here's the second one. There's a place for you, and Jesus is going to take you there. Jesus will take you there. Jesus has more details to give them. He tells them in verse 3, in the first half, he says, when everything is ready, I will come and get you. See, not only is the Father's uh, house and heart huge and open to his people, but Jesus himself is going to come back and get us and bring us there. He's not sitting around waiting for his disciples to figure out a path to get there on their own. He's going to come back and rescue them. He's going to help them. Now, I was remembering uh, a few years ago, I had an opportunity to speak uh, at a conference at Saddleback Church on the uh, big auditorium stage. And I remember when it was my turn to go back, I got up from my seat and I walked around to where the backstage entrance is and there was a security guard there. And I told the security guard, I'm here, this is who I am and I'm supposed to go backstage. But that didn't seem to impress him much. 
In fact, as it turns out, a lot of people walk up to that security guard and tell them, I'm here and I'm supposed to go backstage. So he wasn't budging. But just then the door opened. And the person who had invited me to speak was standing there, took, put their arm around me and brought me in. And let me tell you, the comfort of knowing not only is Jesus making a spot for us, but he's going to get us there. He's going to show us how to get there. He's going to open the door and bring us through. Here's the third thing about Jesus that's so good. Not only is there a spot for you, and not only will Jesus get you there, he's going to be there with us. Jesus himself will be there. Maybe the two sweetest words in this whole passage are these, with me, with me. John 14, 3 through 4. When everything is ready, I'll come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. See, this is the greatest consolation for the disciples' troubled hearts that you can imagine. The disciples are worried. Jesus, where are you going? Jesus, why can't we go where you're going? Jesus, why won't you be with us? And Jesus is saying, listen guys, I'm making a spot for you in the Father's house. I'll come back and get you when it's ready and I will be with you there forever. I'll be with you. Friends, if you want to know what my description of what eternal life looks like, if you want to know what I believe about heaven, you, we could talk all of the details, but here's the one most central detail I know. You'll be with Jesus. You'll be with God. He'll be there with you. It changes everything. It's not just a good place. It's a place where we get to dwell with God. And Jesus says, you know how to get there, and poor Thomas, I feel so bad for Thomas. By all accounts, Thomas went on to do amazing things. He's the, the apostle that uh, church history says went to India and did so many wonderful things, but what do we know about Thomas? It, he's doubting Thomas, right? So poor Thomas, he, it, the couple of times he's mentioned, it doesn't go good for him. And here, Thomas blurts out, verse 5, we have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? We, we don't know where you're going. Jesus, why are you speaking in riddles? We don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. And Jesus' response to Thomas is one of the most fundamentally important verses for a Christian to understand, for a person to understand in all the Bible. This is what Jesus says. Verse 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. See, Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'll show you guys the way. Jesus does not say, I know the way. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. Jesus tells Thomas, Thomas, you know the way because you know me. And if you know me, then you know the way. Not a way, but the way. Not some possible route or some possible way, but the one and only way. See, all roads may lead to Rome, but only one road leads to the Father, and that is Jesus Christ, the way. See, the question that Thomas asks is the most important question anyone can ever ask. Thomas is willing to ask Jesus out loud, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, oh, Thomas, 
you do know the way. Because, see, the world says there's lots of ways. The world says that the road is wide open. And you get to choose whatever path you decide to choose to find your way to God. But Jesus himself says something very different. John 3, 36, Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God will remain on him. See, Jesus' comfort to his disciples is saying, I am enough for you. I am the way. You know the way already because you know me and I am sufficient for you. Friends, this is a huge statement. So the question comes, well, can Jesus be trusted? So the next part, Jesus says, I'm the way and I am the truth. This Greek word here in the New Testament, uh, aletheia, is the word translated for truth. And it really, in ancient Greek culture, this word was used synonymously to refer to both truth and reality. It was the same word. If something was true or if something was real, it was the opposite of an illusion. It was like a fact or a law of nature. So when Jesus is saying, I am the truth, he is saying, I am the physical embodiment and fulfillment of what is real truth, the word of God. And this reality is the opposite of what you see in this world. It is the opposite of false. It's the opposite of illusion. This amazing, mind-blowing truth is so uh, permeated John, the apostle's mind. I just think he's listening to Jesus speak this. And it's just, it's, it's permeating his heart, his mind, and the spirit later as he begins to write his gospel. This is what he says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. So that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into this world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son. Who came from the father. Full of grace and truth. You see Jesus didn't just teach us the truth. He himself was the truth. The truth that has existed from eternity past. Later on in the morning, just tomorrow morning from this statement, Pilate's going to ask Jesus the famous question, well, what is truth? Jesus answered that question right here. He said, I am the truth. See, Jesus can testify to the truth and teach us the truth because he himself is that truth. In him, there's nothing false, nothing misleading, nothing fake, nothing uncertain. Truth is a person not a concept. That means that you can never know the truth about your life, about this world, about your circumstances, 
unless you know Jesus, the truth. Jesus then adds, I'm the way, I'm the only way. And I'm what's true, and he says, I am the life. Jesus said he is the one and only way that we can find, experience, and enjoy the life that we were created for. In fact, he tells us in John 10.10, the thief comes to the thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. But here's Jesus' mission. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He said, I alone hold the words, the keys to eternal life. He says, whoever finds me finds life. He said, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. He said, whoever believes in my name, his name will be written in the book of life. Jesus is crystal clear that he is the source. He is the supply of all life. He is the one and only way for us to get to life with God and to live our life with God eternally. Colossians 1.16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Again, we just looked at it, but look again, John 1, 3 through 4, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made, in him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. Jesus Christ is the life. Jesus imparts his life to us. And no one else can do that. Jesus is the key. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Friends, you cannot find any of these things apart from Jesus. Do you understand why he was telling his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled and then he goes on to tell him why. My father's getting a spot ready for you. I'm going to take you there. In fact, I'll be there with you forever. But we don't know the way, Jesus. Oh, Thomas, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Something else we're missing here in this original language, the Greek that this was written. I just love this. Thomas says, we don't know the way. And the Greek word that he uses for this word no is this word oida, O-I-D-A, oida. And it's the word that the Greeks would use when they're talking about facts or information or knowledge. But when Jesus answers Thomas's question, he doesn't use that same word. He doesn't respond to him with the word oida. In fact, he uses a different one. He says, verse 7, if you had really known me, you would, you would know who my father is. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus uses the word gnosko. We've talked about this word before for the word know. Gnosko is a word used when you're talking about an intimate knowledge. Not factual, information-driven uh, knowledge, but intimate knowledge. It's a word that speaks of being experienced. It's a word for deep 
soul-level connection and intimacy. I told you uh, several weeks ago in a message, this is the word that was used when it was said that a husband knew his wife and they became pregnant. It was the word gnosko. It represented a deep intimacy, a sharing together. That's more than simple information. Jesus says, Thomas, if you would have had an intimacy with me, if you would have known me deeply and intimately, it would have changed everything. You're looking for information, but I'm looking for a relationship. I'm looking for something deeper than that, that, that just simple information won't cut it. You see, Jesus could have given them all the information. He could have told them exactly what was going to happen, exactly where they were going to go, exactly what would happen next. In fact, he could have laid out for each of these disciples what the next years of their life looked like. That wouldn't have helped their troubled heart. The information wouldn't have helped their troubled heart. Knowing Jesus intimately was the solution. And Jesus is trying to get them to move from knowing him up here to having a relationship with him here. Friends, we talk about this a lot at this church because it's so important that we make this same transition, that we move beyond just the facts, that we move just beyond the information that we've learned to knowing Jesus and having a relationship with him. Now, Philip is going to speak up. Okay, so we've heard from Thomas. Jesus just got done with this huge statement. If you knew me, you would know the Father. In fact, if you've seen me, you've seen him. And Philip says, verse 8, Lord, <clears throat> show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Can you just imagine with me in this moment after three years together? Here they are at the very end. He, he's bearing his heart to these guys. He's telling them with real clarity all these things. I mean, he literally just got done saying, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. <clears throat> Lord, could you show us the Father? We'll be satisfied if you do. Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip? And still you don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own. But my Father who lives in me does His work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work you've seen me do. What an incredible statement. Friends, I've shared this quote with you before. But the reality is people just like to ignore the things Jesus says. Because there's this huge amount of us and of this world who likes to talk about Jesus as if he was just a really good teacher. You know what? I don't know about Jesus as God, but he was a good teacher. He had a lot to teach us about morality, a lot to teach us about life. Jesus is really good for our culture. You know, I don't believe the God part, but I think he was a good man. You hear this all the time in our culture. Maybe you carry some of that in your own heart. In fact, the survey was done by Lifeway right at the end of the pandemic where they surveyed and asked people who professed, this is just people who said, I'm an evangelical Christian. So I know that that title gets all kinds of mixed up, but this is people who self-identified, I'm an evangelical Christian. And of that group, 
almost 40% who said, I am an evangelical Christian, when they were asked the question, is Jesus God, said no. Friends, I'm telling you, you don't understand how deep this goes. Here's what C.S. Lewis had to say. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can't shut him up for a fool. You can't spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, if you read the gospel, you'll see Jesus speaks with clarity about who he was. He spoke with clarity exactly about who he was and what he was doing. And if we properly understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing, friends, that gives us all the reason to not let our hearts be troubled. If you understand that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is God in the flesh, that he is going to make a way for us, that those who place their faith in Jesus will be saved, then all of the reason that the enemy can try to trouble your heart is taken away. Band, I want you to come back up. I'm going to read some more scriptures here because I just want to hammer this point home. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Listen to this. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and He is supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything. In the heavenly realms and on earth, He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He existed before anything else, and He holds all of creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is His body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So He is first in everything. For God, in all His fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through Him, God reconciled everything to Himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Is this good? See, Paul makes it crystal clear to us, just as Jesus did, by the way, that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is God, that He existed before all things, that Jesus created all things, that Jesus is the one that holds everything together. That is the reason, friends, that your hearts need not be troubled. Jesus, 
The same very Jesus who you read about in the gospel, who is alive and well and seated on his throne, is holding everything together. And that includes you. He has your life. He has your future. He has your circumstances under and in his control. Romans 8, 31. What shall we say then about such wonderful things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and is seated in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Well, can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or if we're persecuted or if we're hungry or destitute or if we're in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. For I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons. Neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to respond to Jesus this morning. He's supreme. And he was teaching his disciples this valuable lesson that you and I need to see today. Do you have a troubled heart today? Jesus says, come to me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And he tells us, friends, that he's more than sufficient for us.